Well, Leila, thank you very much also for the very kind introduction. Um, it is an honor to be here, really. I was spent the day walking around. You must hear this all the time from visitors, but you know, I had my camera. This is my first time here, so you know, I had my camera out and uh, I, I really took it all in. It's such an inspiring city. And, and I can imagine that you, know, you feel that, that inspiration around you as you do your work. I certainly felt it today. I did expect more comments on my name. Um, it's slight, it, yeah. I, I've only received one comment so far this trip. Um, and I know it's spelled slightly differently than the Harry Potter books, but I am, you know, referred to. No, McGonagall. Oh, the last word is lie, but that, no one knows that one. That's okay. Um, but the, the professor McGonagall, all my students in, in Utrecht get very excited when they see my name. And uh, I try to dress up as a witch on Halloween so that I carry on the good tradition. Um, yeah, so let me get started uh, so we can get into it. Uh, as Leila said, my work is on uh, victims, it's on human rights, it's on international accountability and inst international institutions dealing with accountability. So my talk today is focused on the International Criminal Court and its relationship with human rights law and, and particularly the role of judges and interpretation. So I've slightly changed my title for the paper that I wrote. Um, so it now says uh, the ICC and human rights considerations, but that's a bit more boring. So I like this one better, the inadequacy of the ICC as a human rights institution. Um, I begin from the premise that a number of scholars argue that there is a global legal system that is emerging, that is fusing international human rights law, international humanitarian law, and international criminal law. Uh, this is largely from Rudy Titel, but there are others as well who say this, and that the International Criminal Court lies at the heart of this new global justice system. And she and others contend that um, human rights needs to be at the heart of the decision-making of the ICC. And my contention is that while it may be true that the court deals with serious violations of human rights and human rights norms are listed, as a secondary source of applicable law under the statute, um, I do not believe that the ICC was ever designed to operate as a human rights institution or monitoring body as such, but rather as a criminal court. And I begin from the premise that this distinction is important. So utilizing Daryl Robinson's uh, 2008 identity crisis theory, which he largely developed uh, on the case law from the ICTY, International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia. Uh, my article and my, my talk today will note instances where the ICC has succumbed to its own identity crisis. Um, but I also try to show the complexity of the court's decisions by highlighting that in a number of prominent instances, uh, the court has been reluctant to take on a broader human rights mandate. So I conclude that the application of human rights uh, is unclear and is actually largely driven by pragmatism rather than principle. I argue that greater clarity, perhaps through a more consistent and transparent theory of international criminal law interpretation, is needed. Um, 
And in the meantime, before this emerges or comes to light, I assert that the judges should remain reluctant from conflating the two fields of law, um, because otherwise will undermine the very principles upon which fair and legitimate criminal proceedings are based. <coughs> so, generally, this is what I will try to do today. I hope it works. <laughs> important, um, I will first draw important distinctions between human rights law and criminal law. Um, I'll address, I'll go through um, Robinson's identity crisis theory. I will show in two instances, one substantive, one procedural, the identity crisis at work at the ICC. I will then look at how in three other instances uh, where the court has been very reluctant to adopt a broader human rights approach. And then at the end, I'll look at this um, what we can extract from these examples. These are the from five very prominent examples where human rights have played a role at the court um, and what to do about it. And that's where I hope you guys can become uh, active and tell me what you propose to do about it. So human rights law, I'll just go all the way through actually. Yeah, okay. Um, the nature, definition, and scope of human rights law, as you all know, has long been the subject of heated debate uh, from a wide variety of disciplines, ranging from ethics to philosophy to law and the social sciences. I am examining human rights from a legalistic viewpoint in my paper, um, and this is because I'm specifically examining, examining human rights law and international criminal law interaction. So from this viewpoint, I'm seeing human rights as the legal protections of the dignity of individual human beings vis-a-vis uh, -vis an abuse of power by the state. So following from this, uh, individuals have rights against the state, and in theory, states are obliged to respect, protect, and fulfill the rights included in international human rights conventions and customary international law. Uh, to monitor the implementation of human rights norms and to ensure individuals have access to remedies under domestic, regional, and international law. States have allowed <coughs> human rights mechanisms, judicial and non-judicial, to monitor and comment upon the implementation of human rights within their jurisdictions. From the Second World War onwards, there has been a proliferation of international human rights bodies at both the regional and international level, established for the promotion and protection of human rights. Using the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties and the interpretive methods provided under their respective treaties, judges and commissioners and members of these bodies um, have developed a number of overarching approaches to interpretation. First, human rights bodies acknowledge the primacy of texts of human rights treaties. Second, they adopt a teleological approach whereby they focus on the subject and purpose of the treaty which in the case of human rights is usually geared to the protection of the rights of individuals vis-a-vis -vis a state. As such, they have had a tendency to interpret rights in an expansive and progressive manner. And indeed, in their own words, human rights bodies welcome, quote, liberal, broad, progressive, and dynamic interpretations of the law. And while this might not be the case all the time, an example would be the European Court of Human Rights, which, as many of you know, often affords states a wide margin of appreciation. <coughs> when looking at treaty bodies and other human rights courts, there certainly seems to be a preference for expansive interpretation. 
This style of interpretation stands in stark contrast to one usually adopted by criminal courts operating in liberal systems of criminal justice. So what do I mean by liberal? A liberal system of criminal justice adopts liberal theories and values as distinct from authoritarian ones. In the liberal model, the state is viewed as substantially more powerful than any of its citizens. In order to protect that citizen vis-a-vis -vis the state, limits need to be placed on state authority. The need for limits is particularly important in the field of criminal law, where the state exerts the ultimate power over an individual, namely the ability to detain or in some cases even execute. Because the individual may be marginalized and unpopular, criminal procedures adhering to strict standards of fair trial and due process rights um, are believed to lessen the imbalance of power. So liberal criminal justice systems therefore rely on and employ restraining principles uh, in order to ensure accuracy and fairness in the process. So borrowing from Robinson's theory, which I'll go into in a moment, there are a number of important liberal criminal justice restraining principles that I touch on. The first three are three that Robinson also discusses in his work. These include the uh, principle of personal culpability, the principle of legality, and the principle of fair labeling. The principle of personal culpability holds that individuals are only held accountable for their own conduct. The principle requires a certain level of knowledge and intent in relation to the prohibited conduct in order to meet the mens rea requirement of culpability. The principle of legality holds that definitions of crimes not be applied retroactively and be strictly applied so as to provide fair notice to individuals and restrain any arbitrary abuse of power. And finally, the principle of fair labeling holds that the label of the offense should fairly and clearly express the wrongdoing of the accused so that the conviction corresponds to the wrongfulness of the act. In addition to these uh, three important criminal law principles um, that have all been recognized by international courts, I also address the principles of legal certainty and other fair trial rights. The rights that I look at include um, the right to adequate time and facilities to prepare a defense, the right to an expeditious trial, and the right to be tried by an independent and impartial tribunal. Uh, these are all relevant given their liberal restraining character in criminal law. So what is the identity crisis theory? In his identity crisis theory from 2008, Daryl Robinson explains how a system, the international criminal law system, which strives and purports to scrupulously guarantee rights and fairness in a liberal criminal process has time and again adopted contradicting, uh, illiberal doctrines contradicting the very foundations of criminal law. Examples that he highlights include the adoption of the doctrine of joint criminal enterprise, particularly JCE3, as well as other sweeping modes of liability, expanding the definition of crimes, and minimizing available defenses to accused. He emphasizes that the problem is not simply unfamiliarity with liberal criminal law principles, but, quote, the influence of assumptions of human rights actively work at a cross-purposes to fundamental criminal principles. Uh, 
So in his study, he explored three modes by which the assumptions of human rights liberalism undermined criminal law liberalism within international criminal law. So the modes that he examines are interpretive approaches, substantive and structural conflation, and ideological assumptions. First, uh, the influence of interpretive approaches from human rights shows how a victim-focused teleological reasoning can undermine strict construction and can promote sweeping interpretations that affect culpability and fair labeling. He shows that if the courts, quote, look exclusively at maximizing protection of victims, then analysis of doctrines becomes a simple, one-dimensional task of identifying the broadest and hence best articulations, end quote. The example of how the ICTY dismissed the distinction between international and non-international armed conflict, despite the actual terms of the Geneva Conventions, and basing that dismissal on the purpose of the Geneva Conventions being the protection of the dignity of the human person, is just one of many Robinson highlights where the court departs from principle of strict construction. He argues that there are, while it is maybe one purpose, it is not the sole purpose of the Geneva Conventions. Second, he shows how substantive um, and structural conflation of the two fields of law has resulted in the neglect of criminal law principles that aim to protect the blame and punishment meted out to individuals. He warns against uncritically transplanting concepts and jurisprudence from one domain to the other without taking into account different purposes of both. In this regard, human rights applies collective to collective entities like states and the focus on systems as a whole with the aim of advancing the protection of and respect for human rights. International criminal law, on the other hand, focuses on the criminal vil uh, responsibility of a specific accused individual. Its scope is far narrower than that of human rights law. Unlike human rights law, which is enforced largely through political means, criminal law employs a robust method of arrest, trial, and punishment, and imprisonment. The ability for the states or other such authority to ultimately detain an individual requires the adoption of these restraining principles, at least within a liberal criminal justice system. Third, he demonstrates how ideological assumptions about human rights, progress, and sovereignty can facilitate a preference for broad doctrines and interpretations, leading to departure from fundamental liberal criminal justice principles. The narrative of human rights, he argues, views the notion of sovereignty and opposition with normative and progressive <coughs> progress. These anti-sovereignty assumptions, he argues, are also at play in international criminal law. He shows how in the literature as well as in the case law of the ICTY, anti-sovereignty notions result in uncritical assumptions about preferences for expansive interpretation of the law without considering the fundamental restraining principles of criminal law. So his identity crisis theory explains how a system that strives to be a model of liberal criminal justice has embraced illiberal and contradictory doctrines. While recognizing that such uh, departures from fundamental liberal criminal justice principles have happened at the national level as well, particularly with regards to terrorism or organized crime, he notes that 
Within international criminal law, the departures have been far more prevalent and extravagant, with far less debate and discourse on the matter. So given that his work was published in 2008, just as the ICC was beginning its first trial uh, against Lubanga, uh, I, I thought it was an opportune time to look at how his identity crisis theory um, <coughs> would apply at the ICC. So I, thought, I saw it as a useful lens through which to view the practice. And it was. So international criminal court and I was very excited I could finally replace the old building with the new building so for those of you who have not seen the image of the new premises uh, of the ICC this is it this is um, I, I was able to go on a tour of it the public was open to go on tours it's a very impressive building um, yeah but we'll see the reactions of, of others but I it, it was a nice building far better than its current temporary location so, and it's full of symbolism. You have to go on the tour. They'll tell you all about the water and what it means and different <laughs> geographic representations. So the Rome Statute refers to human rights three times. Article 21.3, Article 36.B.2, and Article 69.7. Of all these provisions, Article 21.3 is arguably the most relevant as it pertains to statutory interpretation and sources of law. I should have asked, I don't know how many of you are lawyers. Some, okay. Um, some of what I say might be too legal technical. If you have questions, don't be shy to interrupt and raise your hand and ask for clarification. It probably means others need the clarification as well. Uh, I sometimes, as a lawyer, forget that um, not everyone likes technical statutory aspects. Uh, so just jump in at any time. So at the Rome Conference, which was the diplomatic conference for the drafting of the Rome Statute, which is the main governing document of the ICC, um, where that took place, there was virtual unanimity between the various delegations concerning the fact that the judge's interpretation of law would need to be consistent with internationally recognized human rights. So scholars have argued that, quote, although the original intention between Article 21.3 was to limit the discretion of the court by providing a boundary within which interpretation and application of the law can be undertaken, its actual effects may have actually broadened judicial competence. And indeed, Bill Chavis described Article 21.3 as ensuring that the statute is, quote, full of promise for innovative interpretation in future years. Some may see this as a very positive thing. I'm more critical. <coughs> so the question remains, however, whether Article 21.3 acts solely as a general interpretive rule or whether it actually provides a substantive source of law. And there's great debate uh, among scholars on this, and there is apparently little um, agreement by the judges as well. So in most of the court's jurisprudence, uh, the court reflects the significant distinction between seeing it as either a source of substantive law or a guide for interpretation. However, the appeals chamber has stated that, quote, human rights underpin the statute, every aspect of it, end quote. And despite this distinction, some chambers have treated Article 21 as gap-filling, whereby it becomes substantive source of law. 
So there's differences amongst the various chambers at the ICC. So Article 21.3, which provides for human rights, either as an interpretive source or as a substantive source, can best be characterized as a special rule of interpretation which provides for potentially <coughs> expansive recourse to human rights norms accepted by the international community, whatever that may mean. So I'll now go into the two, two instances where um, I, I have seen the identity crisis at work at the court. And these are by no means the only two instances. But um, both of these, one is substantive, one is procedural. I wanted to, to give um, <coughs> examples from both where the court has used human rights to, to really underpin its final decision making um, at the expense of the accused, I would add. So in the Katanga Najolo case, the prosecutor originally charged Jermaine Katanga and Najolo Chui with three counts of crimes against humanity and seven counts of war crimes, committed, allegedly committed during an attack on a village in eastern DRC, Bogoro. Both men, and I'm sorry this is too technical, both men were accused under Article 25.3a of having committed the crimes through the mode of liability referred to as indirect co-perpetration. As indirect co-perpetrators, the men allegedly used hierarchical organizations, each of them respectively, the first, the FP, uh, FRPI, and the second, the FNI, these are their various groups, to carry out the crimes in accordance with their common plan, namely the attack on the village. The case went through pretrial, the case went through trial, nearly six months after the close of trial. No final decision had been made by the judges, but the proceedings were essentially finished. So six months after the close of trial, a majority of the trial chamber, acting under Regulation 55 of the court, this is not the statute, but the regulations, notified the parties and participants that it would likely change Katanga's mode of liability to common purpose liability under Article 3D2. So what this means is that they went through an entire trial with the defense defending on one mode of liability and at the close of trial, six months after the close of trial, the judges say, well actually we're going to change the mode of liability for one of the defendants. Under Regulation 55, which is a very controversial regulation, judges may make changes to the legal charges or mode of liability alleged against an accused, and this is the aspect that's controversial, at any stage of trial. So even though the trial had closed and there was no final decision yet, so the trial was technically still going, um, as long as it does not exceed the facts and circumstances confirmed by the pretrial chamber. So as a result of this decision by the judges, uh, the, the judges severed the two cases between Katanga and Najolo, and they acquitted Najolo on the 18th of December 2012. So one of the accused gets acquitted, the other is still facing charges but under a completely new mode of liability. So part of their legal justification, and this is what's important for our talk, um, rested on the fact that the appeals chamber in the Lubanga case had previously held that Regulation 55 can be used 
to close, quote, close accountability gaps. It then went on to cite case law from the European Court of Human Rights and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights to justify their finding that the rights of the accused were protected despite the late application of this regulation and its expansive application. Trial chamber judge Christine van de Van Geert, who I must say is my crush at the court, if you have, you know, her and Judge Fulford. So um, to be, I'll be, uh, get all my biases out on the table for you. <laughs> Disagreed with the position taken by the majority uh, of the trial chamber as well as the appeals chamber. And she argued in her very strongly worded dissent that the majority overstepped its position. She argued that they created a new narrative of the case which failed to reflect key distinctions made at the confirmation and at trial. The new narrative, she argued, presented a fundamentally different case that the defense must answer. In her view and in mine, months after the close of trial, Katanga now faced a completely new case and the notice provided by the trial chamber was not enough to protect his fair trial rights. She also emphasized the appearance of bias um, with the judges acting both as accuser and as judge. So ultimately, the majority did change the mode of liability, and they convicted Katanga on these new, <coughs> newly recharacterized facts or charges. Uh, as a result, he was convicted of crimes on the basis of an uncharged and unlitigated mode of participation that the trial chamber first um, informed the parties of six months after the close of trial of a 30-month trial, I should add. Kevin John Heller, for those of you working in international criminal law, uh, he's a prominent international criminal law scholar, has referred to Judge Van de Weingert's dissent as, quote, standing as the lone bright spot in an otherwise dismal case, one that has resulted in perhaps the most unfair conviction in the history of international criminal law. That is quite a strong statement. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> for all of the scholars, uh, the defense decided not to appeal the conviction. So it stood as is. Now the second example deals with uh, the research from my PhD and uh, is more procedural, um, whereas the other is more substantive. And it has to do with victim participation. So the procedural rights afforded to victims um, have been heralded by many and praised. We all know that. Um, I argue that the judges have been unable to find the most appropriate way to afford victims participatory rights in the proceedings without affecting the court's primary goals of investigation, prosecution, and punishment, as well as affecting the rights of the accused. So although victim participation was a well-intentioned attempt to address previous shortcomings at international tribunals, its application has at times undermined the liberal foundations of the criminal process. So while there are a number of provisions in the statute and rules directed towards interpretation of the courts, uh, participation, the courts actually have wide discretion in how to shape participation. And this has not been an easy task. They have struggled with interpreting um, and bringing in fair trial rights for the accused while also uh, the human rights um, of victims. So one of the most serious concerns has to do with processing and responding to victim applications. This has been particularly problematic in the Bemba case at the ICC where thousands of victims have sought to participate. Problems arise because the evaluation of applications 
is, as noted by the prosecution, which has teams of approximately 40 people working on a case versus six, quote, resource-intensive and extremely time-consuming. So, for example, each application is 10 pages in length. It was cut down from 17. Um, it's now being worked out to cut it down even lower. Layla can tell you more about it. I was going to eat, you know. Um, if 1,000 victims seek to participate, actually it's around 4,000 in Bemba, over 4,000, a legal team, a defense team, which is comprised of six individuals, including interns, must process 10,000 pages of documents on top of the documents that relate to the charges against an accused. The sheer magnitude of this processing places a great burden on the limited resources of defense teams. So some chambers have taken this concern very seriously and have sought to implement more streamlined application processes, and such approaches, I argue, need to continue. So while many of the provisions governing documents on victims' participations are laudable um, and, aim to address the, and aim to address the needs of concerns, the vagueness of the rules and the lack of harmonization have created great legal uncertainty for accused. Um, I, I will add, because of time, I'll skip, that actually judges have invoked, um, when looking at the participatory rights of victims, they have looked to human rights law as a justification for their expansive rights. Um, the most well-known example of this was in the pretrial chamber where Judge Steiner invoked, through human rights law, the right to truth as uh, a means of justifying expansive participatory rights of victims. <coughs> So looked at in isolation, because I want to get to the other examples, uh, the various fair trial standards uh, affected by participation. So what this means is that victims now have broad participatory <coughs> rights and accused often faces multiple um, accusers then, not just from the prosecution, but also from victims' counsel, or in some chambers, um, the victims' counsel via the judges. So the edging away of liberal values is alarming, not least of which because international courts have witnessed a relaxing of procedural and evidentiary rules that ne negatively affect the rights of the accused to a fair trial. The ability of the prosecutor to continuously amend and add charges against an accused throughout trial, the admission of statements going to acts and conduct of an accused without cross-examination, the admission of anonymous testimony, this is rare, and are only a handful of examples. So these are, these are where the identity crisis has been at work. Um, but I don't want to exaggerate these because there are three important examples where the court has um, been very clear that there is a distinction between its role and that of a human rights court. Um, and what I want to examine in my paper is this contradiction uh, in the court's reasoning. So um, there's three examples. The first is the Libya situation. The second. Uh, pertains to the Katanga witnesses, and the third is the recent reparations judgment. On the 26th of February, 2011, the UN Security Council adopted Resolution 1970, unanimously referring the situation in Libya to the ICC. A short time later, in March 2011, so one month later, the then Chief Prosecutor, I should say the infamous Chief Prosecutor, Luis Moreno Ocampo, opened an official investigation and soon afterwards announced that his office identified widespread evidence of crimes against humanity and war crimes. The prosecutor speedily sought and was granted approval uh, for arrest warrants for Libya's former um, 
leader Gaddafi, his son Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, and intelligence chief Abdullah Sanusi. The conflict in Libya uh, at the time was ongoing, and many questioned the prosecutor's speed with which he was proceeding. <coughs> it was later learned that Gaddafi died while in the custody of rebel fighters, uh, leaving only his son Saif al-Islam and Sanusi left to face charges before the court. The referral by the Security Council <coughs> excuse me, left many Libyans with a bitter taste in their mouths because they felt that the men should be tried in Libya uh, by Libyans. Um, I was in Libya not too long um, after the fall of the regime, and this was certainly the sentiment of all aspects of um, uh, society that, that I spoke with. So the, Libyan, the new Libyan government requested permission to try the men domestically. Now importantly, the ICC is not designed to replace national prosecutions. As many of you will know, it is, not, it is meant as a court of last resort and it is intended to supplement or to complement national jurisdictions. As such, the principle of complementarity upon which the court is based rests on the notion that national jurisdictions have primacy and primary responsibility for prosecuting serious crimes. So this primacy is largely based on practical and pragmatic considerations since states will often have better access to evidence and witnesses. Um, only if the state under Article 17 of the statute, if the state is unwilling or unable to genuinely carry out proceedings will the ICC step in. Through its jurisprudence, the court has further found that the national proceedings must encompass both the personal, uh, the person and the conduct which is at issue before the ICC. It's a slightly controversial. So ultimately it found that Libya could try Sanusi, but not Saif al-Islam, Gaddafi. This was mainly based on the fact that Sanusi was in detention in Tripoli, uh, while Saif was being held by a militia group that refused to hand him over to the government in Tripoli at the time. The unwilling element in Article 17 is largely subjective and it requires the court to look at the motives of the state and whether the state is trying to shield the suspect from criminal prosecution. And in this case, actually, um, the Libyans were not trying to shield. In fact, they may have been trying to um, uh, prosecute too easily and do away with fair trial rights. So when it looked at both men and their cases, it actually looked at national human rights standards, not international human rights standards. Despite the fact that international human rights organizations, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty specifically, were arguing that under 21.3 they should be looking at international human rights standards that were not being applied by the state authorities in both cases. Um, the court didn't do that. The court largely looked only to national laws. And even in the case of Sanusi, where the state was clearly in violation of its own national human rights fair trial obligations, the court dismissed that and stated in its decision, quote, the court was not established to be an international court of human rights, sitting in judgment over domestic legal systems to ensure that they are compliant with international standards of human rights. It was one of the strongest statements that the court had made to date, separating itself from a human rights <coughs> institution. So through its case law, the court indicated that international fair trial considerations are not the focus of Article 17 determinations, uh, which is admissibility. 
This is despite the fact that international human rights are specifically mentioned in Article 21.3. This reluctant approach has allowed the courts to provide greater leeway to the domestic system and focus on its role as an anti-impunity mechanism rather than a human rights court reviewing a state's domestic practices. In this regard, the court seemed to suggest that it is important to give domestic judiciaries an opportunity at least until it becomes patently clear that the violation of due process, rather than just being worrying in themselves, call into, the, call into question the very ability to prosecute an accused. Though I'm at a loss, if Libya did not meet this standard, it is hard to contemplate what would. What is interesting in this example is the court's interpretation of the principle of complementarity. It appears that the whole notion of complementarity is still very much linked to sovereignty and also serves to protect it. The anti-sovereignty notions addressed by Robinson do not seem to be at play here. Had they been, it's likely the court would have asserted its jurisdiction over both suspects, and instead greater latitude was given to the court. So the second example is from the Katanga case, and this is the request of two of the witnesses, three of the witnesses, for um, uh, asylum in the Netherlands. So following an agreement by the ICC and the DRC in March 2011, three witnesses uh, in the Katanga Najolo case were transferred from the DRC uh, to the ICC. These three witnesses had been in detention in the DRC prior to giving testimony in The Hague. They had been in detention for over six years without ever having faced in charges by the DRC. And they were in detention for their alleged role of the murder of UN peacekeepers. So while in custody at the ICC in, 2000, in May of 2011, the witnesses requested asylum in the Netherlands, arguing that they would face persecution, safety risks, torture, ill treatment, or even death if they were sent back to prison in the DRC because they implicated the then current president of the DRC with their testimonies. Over the next three years, there would be a diplomatic and legal battle between the ICC, the Dutch authorities, and authorities from the DRC over who had the responsibility over these men. Throughout the long process, both the Netherlands and the ICC tried to excuse themselves from responsibility of assessing the protection concerns raised by the witnesses despite the fact that it was easily a situation of shared responsibility. For its part, the court found that unlike the Netherlands, which was a party to the International Covenant on, Inter um, on Civil and Political Rights and the European Convention on Human Rights, it has a more restrictive regime to act under. Thus, the trial chamber concluded that it could not take any position regarding the potential violation of the witnesses' human rights or alleged uh, persecution by the DRC authorities notwithstanding the absolute nature under human rights law of the principle of non-refoulement, um, the practical effects were that the men were eventually returned to the DRC. The decision by the existence of a context of gross human rights violations in the DRC, their illegal detention prior to their transfer to the ICC and the content of their testimony were important factors that were not given much weight, if any, by the court. In this specific case, the witnesses implicated the president of the DRC in their testimonies. 
Now, such actions could arguably meet the criteria of the Committee Against Torture, making them particularly vulnerable and at risk for torture <coughs> and or ill treatment. The court simply avoided making such assessments. The appeals chamber found that it was not its role to provide guidance in this respect, despite the absolute nature of the principle of non-refoulement. Now, this decision stands in stark contrast to the statement of the appeals chamber in Lubongo, where it held that human rights underpin the statute, every aspect of it. The internal incoherence is striking, though the implications would be great if the court had taken a broader role of assessment. So finally, the third example is from the Lubanga case. And in March of this year, 2015, the appeals chamber handed down its much-awaited judgment in the appeal <coughs> against the trial chamber's decision on reparations. The appeals chamber noted the errors and the shortcomings of the trial chamber decision and clarified how the trial chamber should approach reparation decisions in the future. It's laid out five general elements. Um, but specifically, and more uh, relevant to our talk today, is that it clarified, quote, reparation orders are intrinsically linked to the individual whose criminal liability is established in a conviction and whose culpability for those criminal acts is determined in a sentence. So consequently, the court may only order reparations against a convicted individual um, and indigence is of no relevance for the imposition of liability. So the appeals chamber addressed that part of the trial chamber decision that seemed to open the door for reparations awards for victims who suffered gender and sexual-based sexual violence, crimes for which Thomas Lubanga had not been convicted for, for which were argued were approximately related to the crimes he was convicted for, namely the enlistment, inscription, <coughs> and, uh, and recruitment of child soldiers. The appeals chamber makes clear that the convicted individual may only be liable for harms that are linked to the crimes for which he was convicted. It notes that since the sentencing decision did not include sexual and gender-based violence as being part of the gravity of the crime or as an aggravating factor, it cannot be viewed as a harm resulting for crimes for which he was convicted. What is striking is that the appeals chamber noted how the trial chamber had erroneously relied on case law from the European Court of Human Rights and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, distinguishing the context of those two courts as human rights courts from the role of the ICC. So the judgment holds the character of the ICC as a criminal court that may issue reparations linked with the conviction of an accused and refrains from adopting a broader interpretation with regards to reparations, leaving that instead to the trust fund for victims, which they argue is better placed to exercise those type of functions. I'll just put them all up. Yeah. So based on the five situations that I just examined, it seems that the ICC at times embraces ideological assumptions about human rights and the expansive interpretation of law without considering fundamental restraining criminal law principles. This certainly appeared <clears throat> to be the case in Katanga trial chamber judgment based on Regulation 55 and the approach taken by many chambers regarding victim participation in proceedings. In these situations, the uncritical assumptions and preferences 
seem to discount a number of restraining principles, including the principle of legality, legal certainty, and fair trial considerations. The last three examples, however, suggest that despite serious instances where the identity crisis may be at work, the court has recognized the distinction between its role and that of a human rights body. In both the asylum seekers example and the Libya example, the court was reluctant to substantively or structurally conflate the fields of international criminal law and human rights law. In this sense, it stuck closely to a very strict reading of the statute, though the beneficiaries, and this is the point I'm trying to really come across in my conclusions, the beneficiaries of this approach were not the individuals seeking protection under human rights principles of non-refoulement or international fair trials, respectively. In the reparations judgment, the court refrained <clears throat> from adopting a victim-focused teleological reasoning and instead stepped closely to the principles of culpability and fair labeling. Nevertheless, in this situation, it was arguably willing to do so because it could rely on the trust fund for victim to potentially address the broader needs of the victims. So in these examples, the court showed great reluctance of transplanting concepts from one domain to the other despite doing so in other situations. So the situation that emerges from my analysis of these five prominent uh, examples is unsurprisingly complex. So while the examples set out do differ in context, the last three are less directly related to the criminal case against an accused, um, there is some commonality amongst the five examples in that the court seems to adopt or refrain from adopting a greater human rights approach when it suits practical, practical considerations. In other words, the court is in many ways pragmatic. That should come as no surprise. So when it is useful to adopt a progressive approach, it does so, like when it helps secure conviction and discount alleged fair trial violations, or when it makes victim participation assessments more streamlined. When it is not practical to adopt a human rights approach, like when state cooperation is at issue, such as in the Libya situation or with the asylum situation, or when there is another body to address the greater needs of victims, it will refrain from adopting a greater human rights approach. This commonality, however, <clears throat> should not be exaggerated. The approach of the court is largely unclear and inconsistent. Do I have one more? So what to do? While the examples addressed in my study highlight some of the more prominent situations where human rights issues arose at the ICC, more research needs to be done into judicial administration and interpretation. What is needed is a more comprehensive and transparent approach by the judges towards such tensions in the future. To this end, prominent scholars and academics are uh, calling for the court to adopt a consistent theory of international criminal law that includes a principled interpretation of the Rome Statute. We don't know if this will ever come about, but it's a great exercise for scholars in any case. Um, to move in any direction would further entrench the inconsistent approach adopted thus far. So I argue that should a future theory of interpretation be developed, um, it should reflect a more critical awareness of the reasoning techniques and assumptions that have been adopted by previous courts. And that is it. Thank you very much for listening. Uh